Hello, this is Professor Kozlowski, our first lecture during the coronavirus madness. Um, so I am recording this from home. This is probably a week before you're actually going to hear it, but I'll likely put it online immediately, so who knows. Um, but anyway, this is a very sunny Monday, March 16th. Um, I am starting to record things early because I want to stay ahead of the class, and so I have it available by the time that you're interested in listening to it. Um, this is going to be part of my plan going forward. Um, I want to spend some of this little introductory lecture talking about Ovid and the reading for this coming week, um, but I do sort of want to set the, st the record straight first as far as what we're going to do now that the class is moving online all the time, because um, I know like it's crazy and it's going to be a bureaucratic nightmare and we're all going to be struggling with the adaptation for quite a while. Um, so we're going to talk about the bureaucracy stuff first, and then if we still have, you know, time permitting, so to speak, um, then I'll talk about some Ovid and we can go from there. Uh, so first off, just everything has changed, uh, obviously. Like, you at this point are probably still on spring break. Great, I hope you're enjoying the crap out of it, because it's all going to shit, um, and, you know, it's going to suck soon. So, enjoy it while it lasts. I have been working like a crazy person for the last week and a half, and will continue to work like a crazy person for the next week. But I have still managed to get out to see movies with my wife, and basically enjoy what little um, services are still available at this point. Uh, but as far as our class goes, um, obviously we have to make some pretty big changes to move online. Not as many as some. I know probably some of your other professors are in a downright panic at this point. Fortunately, since most of our assignments were already online in the first place, there's really not that much to move. Um, mostly it's just I can't lecture anymore, or at least not in class. So the main thing that I wanted to do as we are sort of dealing with coronavirus is to make a situation where we can basically do lectures online. Um, so that kind of comes in two parts. Obviously, this is the first part, me just lecturing at you. Um, but of course, that doesn't make for entertaining, you know, internet interactions. So I want to also every week do a one-off Q&A session for about an hour um, where we'll be, I'll be able to ask questions, we'll be able to have our usual class discussions. Um, I am setting up a Discord server for that purpose. Uh, it is already set up. I've got it so, like, everybody who isn't me has to do push-to-talk all the time. That's basically the main thing that I'm attempting to employ. Uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit more in the first play, or a little later. Um, mostly I want to talk about the whole project, like everything that is changing. So I'm going to go over that announcement that I made and make some changes and corrections now that I've thought through it and updated it and have like a much more concrete plan. Um, so first off, obviously today is March 16th and you are not in class. Spring break was pushed to two weeks instead of one, which means that the schedule is going to have to shift a little bit. Um, so first off, the assignments that were really close to coming up, i.e. the midterm and the comparison paper, both of them I've just pushed forward a week. So do not worry about them for now. Um, the midterm will be this week, i.e. next week, i.e. like for my Monday-Thursday class, that means it's the 20... what is it? 26th. 
and for my Wednesday Friday class it will be the 27th of March um, and we're going to talk about the midterm in this lecture as well and our first Q&A session I expect we'll be talking about mostly the midterm um, so don't panic about that we'll come back to it um, also the comparison paper which was going to be due on the 27th is pushed forward to the 3rd of April um, if you have questions about that, feel free to shoot them my way. This is a fairly major assignment by this class's standards. It's like the second biggest paper in the class. Um, but at this point, you should be pretty comfortable with what it's asking. Um, specifically, the comparison paper is take two major myths that we've talked about, either in the heroic tradition or like Homer's Iliad or Odyssey, which will have started the Iliad by then. Um, and compare them, talk about the different priorities, talk about the different themes that are at stake, talk about what they have to say to their culture. Um, and you can really pick like anything for those. We've already dealt with quite a few major myths. Um, so by major, I kind of mean more than just a couple of pages. So, you know, Heracles, Jason and the Argonauts, those are both excellent options. Um, the Theseus story or the Theban cycle, like with Orpheus, or no, not Orpheus, Oedipus. Um, those are good options. Hesiod's Theogony is a good option. Any of the longer Homeric hymns, so like the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite or Apollo or Demeter, all good options. Um, we're looking at any two of them. You get to pick which two. You get to pick what you want to talk about with those two. Um, anything goes on that. So, you know, feel free to shoot questions my way if you were worried about it, but please don't worry about it because you can handle this. Um, this is stuff we've been doing in class for a while now. Um, it's what I've been asking you to do in your response papers. You should be pretty adept at this point. Um, additionally, the reading schedule is bumping forward a week. I am working on updating the Canvas page to reflect that. I think I've already done it for the Monday-Thursday class. I'll be doing it for the Wednesday-Friday shortly. Um, basically, all the readings are one week forward, um, with a couple of exceptions. I have removed one of our later readings and I have compressed unfortunately our Oedipus reading into one day rather than one week so we'll have quite the reading when it comes right down to it but there's also no quiz attached to it so whether or not you read Oedipus I kind of won't know for sure um, but we'll you know get back to that as we come to it additionally the other assignments later are not going to have their due dates changed so the research paper is still going to be due may 1st no change there the final exam hard date may 7th can't change that um, it'll be online unless i hear differently um, i know montclair is planning to just do the rest of the semester online cool fine with me um, i'll post the final exam online and we'll have it at the usual time. Um, so no, no big changes any further than the next few weeks and just the general shuffling of reading assignments forward. Um, but everything else is going to stay the same. So the reading quizzes, still the same. All the assignments, still in place. Nothing is being dropped from the curriculum except for one and a half readings. Um, it's really not going to shake us up too terribly much. Um, where it will change is in how we deal with the material because again obviously we're not meeting for lectures which is a bummer because I suspect I'm way better in person than I am you know speaking in your ear from miles away um, I will probably be super duper awkward in the Q&A's just a warning because I am terrible at all of this sort of non-facial expression communication thing like I'm bad on the phone I'm bad in internet interviews 
I mean, I hope I'm not awful, but I probably will be, so apologies in advance. Um, but yeah, that's going to be our plan going forward. I do want to retain our schedule as much as possible, so like, I want to encourage you to keep doing classwork on either the Monday, Thursday, or Wednesday, Friday schedule. Um, just because, and I emphasize this in the, in the announcement, online classes suck. Um, if you haven't taken an online class at this point, you probably need to hear this. If you have taken an online class, you can probably identify. You've probably struggled with it. Um, I know that, like, everyone in every buddy out there is like, oh, we should all move to online. Online is great. It's so convenient. It's so cost effective. That is total BS. Um, online is really difficult to maintain accountability on. Uh, and it's really difficult to manage. Like, it's one thing for you to come to my class out of habit or whatever, as grumpy as it makes you, show up there and have me yell at you about your papers and remind you about your assignments and, you know, hold you accountable for your readings by basically making it intolerable for you to just sit there and listen to me all day. It's another thing to basically have nothing grounding you to this work. Um, the fact of the matter is, like, I've the first time I took an online class, I nearly failed it. Um, and the first time I taught an online class, nearly half the class failed. Like, it's a really tough way to conduct classroom business. Um, and it's really easy on your end for you to just get completely disconnected and just to totally disengage from everything that's going on. Um, so let me stress this. Do not let that happen to you. Don't let those reading assignments slip away. Do not let the reading quizzes go by. Um, do not, do not forget the major assignments like the midterm or the research paper because um, there's only so much that I can do. Like I can only pester you so much via email or Canvas messaging or whatever. And I've got a lot of students to keep track of. So I'm probably not gonna be like individually emailing you if you miss a major assignment. You'll just see that zero show up, no submission received. And if you choose not to do anything about it, you will probably fail the class. Do not let that happen. Um, the best thing I can recommend to fix that is keep the schedule you used to have as much as you possibly can. Like, I know things are going to change. I know half of you are probably at home dealing with younger siblings because your parents are still working or you've got, like, some job that you're trying to hold down at the same time or, you know, let's be perfectly honest, quite a few of you probably have a very rigorous video gaming schedule going on right now. Whatever it is, that's fine. You can make that work with this class, but I highly, highly recommend schedule around your classes or else you will watch them just fall apart in front of you. Um, so to that end, I'm keeping the due dates. Um, the reading quizzes, the discussion board stuff, it is all going to be based on whatever our face-to-face -face class schedule was, Monday and Thursday or Wednesday and Friday. I will expect you to basically get stuff done at the time that I would have normally. I've done the like week at a time schedule and to some degree we are shifting in that direction, but I think at the end of the day it's probably going to be more of a disservice than it is a help. I'm going to only be doing one lecture, one Q&A a week, but I highly recommend like time that to work with your due dates. Time that to work with your Monday, Thursday, or Wednesday, Friday schedule. Watch the lecture, get into a routine, uh, go do the Q&A, go do the discussion boards, like do some part of this class 
on a regular basis so you do not like let it slip away from you get that get that as part of your day-to-day waking up and doing stuff habit um treat it like a face-to-face class do it at the same time every week like whatever it takes to get it done make sure that that happens because otherwise it's very much going to slip away um but that said my plan is that i'm going to upload one maybe two lectures a week it'll kind of depend on how much time it takes to do this um it's a pretty time consuming process on my end like editing audio isn't that bad but i definitely do want to get a little bit more involved especially when we get closer to the research paper um there might be multiple lectures in a given week depending on what the material is we'll see Um, But in addition, uh, I'll have the lecture uploaded by Monday for sure. Um, And one way or the other, we're going to do a QA and a session on Discord on Tuesdays at 1 o'clock in the afternoon every week, like clockwork. Um, I know that's a weird day for all of us. Like, that's not a day that we usually have class, but it's what fits with my schedule under the circumstances. And it's far enough in advance of the rest of the week that we'll be able to um, still, you know, do all of our major assignments later in the week without too much problem. Um, if there are issues with this, I'm not set in stone. We can change this. Um, let me know via the discussion boards. Uh, there will be a general discussion and a discord discussion going on all the time. So if you're having technical difficulties, if the schedule isn't working for you, talk to me, we can figure it out. Um, again, just when in doubt, like, keep those emails coming. Um, It's going to be, like I said, real easy to disengage. I would rather you harass me to death with your correspondence, either emails or messages or whatever, than to not hear from you between now and the end of the semester. Um, It'll be better for me. It'll be better for you. Um, So don't worry about wasting my time. I'll manage my time on my end. Um, You worry about making sure that you are still on the same page with me on having that conversation uh engaging with this class and with me in some way um so in addition to the lecture and the q a there will also be a discussion board every week um there's going to be three questions for every reading or every week's worth of readings i haven't decided yet it may depend from week to week um you will be responsible for at least two posts on the discussion boards. And by that, I mean not like just a like or, you know, some pithy little meme response or like a one sentence. I agree. I mean, like something substantial. Each of the discussion boards is going to be a big question that surrounds the text. Um, I'd highly recommend answering two of those three questions and calling it a day. Um, or if you feel a little bit more bold, feel free to respond to some of your friends online. You know, don't necessarily, you don't necessarily have to answer the question if you are engaging in the conversation. I'd rather have us have like a long multi-commented thread, um, having a really engaging conversation about the reading and the material and the themes and everything that's going on than for everyone to like individually answer the question and just me have to go through every week and just look at 15 response papers basically. Um, so anything goes, but make it substantial. Uh, like I'm not going to count your one sentence response as fulfilling the criteria for the assignment. Um, that said, you don't even have to do the discussion board if you show up to the Q and A's. So if you make the effort and show up in discord on Tuesdays, 
Um, I will count that as attendance, and I will waive your discussion board requirement for the week, since I know that everybody hates those. Um, but in order to get that waive, you have to participate in the discussion board, or the, the Q&A. So, like I said, um, that means engaging meaningfully, asking an important question, engaging with the, the rest of the class, having a conversation. Um, that's, again, what I'm going to be keeping you accountable for. And at the end of the day, that's going to be an additional 10% of your grade. Like, I'm going to knock some points off of the final exam and the research paper to make room for it. So the attendance and participation grade will deal with the first half of the year when we were meeting each other face-to-face. -face. The second half of the year I will deal with by checking all those discussion boards, check, taking attendance and noting who is participating in the Q&As. Um, that will be 10% of your grade. So again don't blow it off, don't ignore it, don't let it get away from you. Um, find one of those two avenues, either the discussion boards or the Q&As, to get involved in the class and keep up with what's going on. Because again, it might, it'll be really easy for you to like let it get away, not keep up with the readings, and think everything is alright until finally the final exam shows up and it's like, oh right, you are accountable for everything that we've done in this class so far. Um, so again, don't let it get behind. Do not think that you can like blow it off for the first four weeks or so and then catch up at the end. I've seen students try it. It never ever works. Um, now as to the actual Q&A business, uh, the Discord server is up. I have modified it. Um, obviously it's going to be a bit of a bear to try and run and administrate. Um, I'm hoping, since we are all internet savvy individuals, um, that everybody can just hop on the Discord at the right time on Tuesday. Um, I've got it automatically set up so like I am a priority speaker so I will be louder than everybody else but also that everybody who comes in is going to be required to use push to talk. Um, I think the, the key is control unless you remap it on Discord. Um, so if you have a question I'm just gonna ask you to like post a comment that you can like text basically on Discord, so you can like write in I am raising my hand or something of this the sort. I'm sure there's an emoji for a hand, like anything that gets my attention, um, that's fine, and then I'll just call on you just like it would be a normal class situation, and then you can push to talk and participate. Um, so the key here is basic internet etiquette. Um, like I realize that it's going to be 30, 40 people in this chat room together. Um, ideally, so it can obviously get nuts if nobody is behaving correctly. Like, the last thing I want is for us to all be on the Discord chat and for you to have, like, a heated argument with a sibling or your parent because they came into the room at the wrong time. Like, the last thing I want is to hear, like, get out of my room, Mom! Like, that's going to be really awkward for you and for me, and we don't want that. Um, so... I'm going to trust you to behave on this. If it becomes a problem, I'll change it. Um, I know that there are ways to like mute everyone across the board. It's a thing. I have the power to mute on command. It's very nice, actually. Definitely flatters my tyrannical leanings. Um, but hopefully we won't have to go that far. Just like I expect decent behavior in the classroom, so I'm hoping to have decent behavior on the Discord server, um, and we'll change it as necessary. Um, but in order to just make that work, I need you to send me your handle. Um, 
once I get it, I will friend you. Yep, I'm going to have a lot of friends when all of this is done. Um, and then I will invite you individually to the chat servers where we will be doing class on Tuesdays. Um, and now the Q&A is going to serve for both of my classes. So it's going to be a lot bigger and a lot of people you probably haven't met in our class, whatever it might be. Which I think is okay, honestly. I don't have a problem with this. The Discord server apparently supports up to 50 people. And I honestly don't expect, like, 100% participation. If so, then we'll figure something out. Um, but I like the idea of us having a conversation across the two classes. It saves me time. It saves you time. It saves effort on my part. Um, I think it'll work out. If it doesn't, eh, we'll deal with that. Um, but again, this is also completely optional. Like, this is instead of the discussion boards, and I imagine it'll be a lot more convenient and a lot more pleasant than the discussion board, so I highly recommend doing it. Um, but if you can't do it, like, if you do not have a device that supports it, or if you don't want to give me your Discord handle, or, you know, if you have any reservations about this whatsoever, if you just want to wallflower your way through the class, that's fine. Use the discussion boards. Um, remember, you will be responsible for some kind of inter interaction, but whether you want to do it typing or talking is entirely up to you. I'm not going to make this mandatory. It's just going to be super helpful. Um, so again, I'll be on from one o'clock in the afternoon, or I'll start on one at one o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesdays. We will probably go for an hour and 15 minutes. Um, like I will at minimum stay online until 2.15. Um, even if nobody is in the chat server, I will just hang out there and treat it like office hours. Um, if we need to go longer, that's fine. I don't really have a hard time to quit on that. Um, as long as the internet is working, I will be on like clockwork um and it's honestly less time consuming than me driving all the way out there um and delivering the lecture in person so in the in the end i suspect it'll take less time overall um so yeah definitely get me your handle by tuesday if you want to participate um i will get you hooked up onto our servers all will be well um, if you have any questions, if you have any technical difficulties, if you don't know what Discord is, feel free to talk about it in the discussion board I've set up for it. Um, I include a link to the download page there. I'm sure that you can get it on your phone as well as laptops, desktops, whatever. Um, it is available for basically everything. Um, but yeah, if you've never used it before, it's super convenient. Uh, I've never had any problems with it. It's way better than Skype or any of the comparable services out there besides like actual geared for teaching stuff that I can't afford or don't know how to use. Um, so I'd highly recommend just getting it and using it and it'll make this class probably a lot more pleasant than trying to just keep up with the discussion boards week after week and participating in the asynchronous conversation. Um, so we might do more than one a week as we get closer to major assignments. Again, the research paper looms um, we'll deal with that as we come to it. You can always request um, a meeting with me on Discord, just like you could meet me during my office hours. Um, I like We will make this work one way or the other. I am flexible. That is how I'm going to get through this um, online transformation, and that's how I suspect you will as well. So, you know, just treat it like any other class. Just treat it like a face-to-face -face meeting. Um, take it seriously, and we'll all get through all right. Um, so, again, like, if you need me, just let me know. Email, 
Canvas message, Discord, whatever. Like, I'll even be on Discord for gaming in all likelihood over the next couple of weeks. Feel free to pester me with a question, and but don't be offended if I don't respond immediately. Um, so that's the basic structure of what the class is going to look like from here on out. What I highly recommend, again, is get into a habit, get into a routine, schedule your events, read the material over the weekend, uh, listen to the lecture on Monday, attend the Q&A or do the discussion board posts on Tuesday, um, spend Wednesday or Thursday doing the quiz <coughs> um, and doing any other assignments that need to come up. Um, to keep up with the discussion boards after you initially post, you know, just get into that habit, make it regular. Um, get to the point that, you know, you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, ah, it is Tuesday, I have to get ready for the Q&A. Or, oh, it is Saturday, I need to read the assignment for class. Um, if you don't, then ultimately you will neglect these things. They will slip away from you and it will get bad. And you don't want that. And I don't want that. So just again scheduling it works so that's what we're dealing with as far as the online transition um the next issue we need to talk about is the midterm because surprise that's next week unfortunately due to the way that the class was organized the midterm is like right after um the spring break so the midterm there's a review sheet online, which you are more than welcome to use. I highly encourage you to look at it before coming to the Q&A for Tuesday, because that's probably what we're going to spend most of our time talking about. Um, it is kind of cryptic, I realize. Like, all of my midterm review sheets and other test review sheets basically end up being the form of me writing the name of the topics that I think are important, and then expecting you to do the research on them in your own time. Um, but... For us, it's important to note, um, like, I, I know that you probably have questions about what to expect from the midterm. So I, I want to sort of like lay out what our basic structure is going to be like, and then we can answer more particular questions further down the road. Um, so the midterm has, first of all, two major parts. There is the part that would be considered the in-class portion, were we in class? And then there's the take-home essay. Um, we'll get to the take-home essay in a bit. The objective portion is meant to test breadth, not depth. Like, we've covered a lot of material in this class. Um, I do not want you to re have to reread literally everything we've read for this class in order to prepare for the midterm. So mostly I'm going to be dealing with just the big ideas, the big figures, the big characters, stuff that we've talked about multiple times, stuff that is important enough that you should know it cold. Um, so the first page is literally just the deities, the Olympian gods, the ones that we've been running into over and over and over again, the big 14. Um, and I'm literally, like the first page of the midterm is literally going to be in some form, once I adapt it online, I haven't quite done that yet. Um, I will be asking you for the Greek names, the Roman names, and the domains of each of the major Olympian gods. Um, you can see the whole list on the Canvas page. I don't know why the formatting is a little weird. I'm going to hopefully fix that before next week. Um, but yeah, we're talking about the big three, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. We're talking about the major goddesses like Demeter, Hera, Hestia, Aphrodite, 
Apollo and Artemis, Hermes, Ares, Athena, Hephaestus, and Dionysus. Like, you should know all of their Greek names, you should know all of their Roman names, you should know roughly what their domain is, like what they specialize in. Um, I make suggestions as far as the domain, but you can feel free to get creative there. Like, if you put Poseidon as the god of horses, I'll give you credit for that. Um, if you put that Apollo is the god of plague, I'll give you credit for that. Um, I... I am just looking for a clear indication that you know the names and you know um, the rough vicinity that the god holds, like, court over. Um, but also, don't worry about the spelling over much. Um, I should definitely be able to tell the difference between Hephaestus and Hermes, but if you do not have any idea how to spell Dionysos or Hephaestos, and I know that the spellings have varied at various points in the class, just give me enough that I can tell what it is that I'm looking at. Um, like I should be able to recognize the name, even if I, even if you don't get the spelling exactly right. Um, but do keep in mind that this means you need to know the Roman names as well. Like at this point, we've read Ovid, we've seen a lot of these Roman names come up. Um, we've seen them come up in Apollodorus from time to time. We have seen them come up in Livy and elsewhere. Um, you should know both the Greek and Roman names. Um, so I'm going to basically give you a page and it's going to have a bunch of blanks on it, like the exact same sheet that we're looking at for the review sheet, you know, Zeus, Jupiter, sky or thunder, um, only I will have blanks in strategic places. Um, so you'll be provided to fill in, say, what is Zeus's Roman name? Like I might put Zeus blank and then you'd have to fill in Jupiter and maybe blank again and you'd have to say he is the king or the sky god. Um, so, again, you should know all of the Greek and Roman deities pretty cold. Again, we keep coming up against them over and over and over again, and they will be even more important as we get into Homer. Um, you gotta know who's who as far as the Olympian gods are concerned. Um, outside the Olympian gods, though, it's a little bit wilder. Um, so you'll notice that the second page of the review sheet is devoted to other important myths. Um, and I've basically got them organized according to how we studied them in class. So we've got the Homeric hymns to Aphrodite, Demeter, Apollo, and Dionysus. We've got the creation myths, all of our wild readings from the Babylonian mythic tradition or the Israelite mythic tradition, um, Plato's Timaeus and Philon of Byblos. Um, all of these guys, you should know at least roughly what the structure is. Like, I'm not going to ask you to, like, recreate the order of gods and the theogony of Danu. Um, or the Enuma Elish, um, but have a rough idea of what we're dealing with. Like, I would very well ask questions like, who is Tiamat as a multiple choice or something? Um, so be aware of that. Uh, the, then we've got the myths of mankind. So Hesiod's works and days, talking about Prometheus and Pandora, um, Protagoras and Prometheus and Epimetheus, and them giving gifts to different people. Um, Deucalion and Pyrrha, the ones who survived the flood. Israel's Genesis 2 and 3 story, Adam and Eve and the fall, as well as Noah and the flood. And then we've got all the national myths, which we largely just finished covering. So Athens and Theseus, Sparta and the Battle of Thermopylae, um, Thebes and all the major figures there, Cadmus, Orpheus, Tiresias, um, the Trojan War narrative, um, the founding of Rome with Aeneas and with Romulus and Remus, um, the, and of course the Exodus myth and everything that we talked about with Israel. Like I'm not going to ask you to recreate all of our discussion because it was pretty loosey-goosey. Um, but you should definitely know the story of the Exodus, some of the major plagues, the story of the Passover, Moses' role, those things. 
Um, and then lastly, the heroic myths. So Jason and the Argonauts, Perseus, Bellerophon, Heracles, Gilgamesh, and then most recently Orpheus. Um, again, if none of those are ringing a bell, you should probably go and look and research those. Like, go back to those texts, reread them, or at least skim them. Um, but honestly, if you can, like, tell me the basics of the, each of these stories, if you can name a couple of the Her Heraclean labors, you're probably good to go. Um, I'm not going to want to talk about the specific details. This test is not going to reproduce questions that were on the quizzes as a rule. Um, I'm looking for big ideas here, not the little details. Um, so with that in mind, the actual midterm, like the physical test, uh, what you will be asked to do, um, in addition to that first page, which is devoted to the Olympian gods and like filling in the blanks, you know, what is Zeus's Roman name, so on and so forth, um, there will be a matching section where I ask you to match the hero to the heroic deed. Um, so there will be like a list of maybe 10 heroes and a list of maybe 15 deeds, and I'll basically ask you to match each deed to a hero. Um, but notice, 15 deeds, 10 heroes, that means that some of the heroes are going to show up twice. So obviously Heracles is going to be on the list. You can bet that he's going to be responsible for multiple deeds. So keep looking for those Heraclean labors. Um, Likewise, you'll probably see Moses, Jason, all of our major heroic figures. Um, so, you know, knowing what big stuff each of those heroes does is probably a good bet. Um, that's what I'm largely going to be testing there. Then after that are going to succeed like 20 multiple choice questions. And some of them are going to be mean and tricky. Um, you've seen my mean tricky multiple choice questions before. My sort of which of the following is not one of the labors of Her Heracles sort of things. Um, so f you'll probably see a couple of those again. Again, I'm not going to be looking for really finicky details. Mostly I'm looking for big ideas. You should be able to recognize which of the following is a labor of Heracles and which of them is actually something that Jason and the Argonauts did. Um, that's the sort of thing that I'm looking at there. Again, big ideas. Um, after the multiple choice questions, there will be a handful of short answer questions, like one to two sentence uh, short answer questions. And these are like the even bigger ideas, um, stuff that you can't really ask objective questions about, stuff that it requires a sort of more tangible grasp, a more... Um, a more generalized understanding of what's going on. And that's where you'll probably see some of my questions about like the creation myths um, or about like the national myths. Um, like I might very well ask about Alexander the Great or about Romulus and Remus or Aeneas. Um, I might ask about the Trojan War um, or Thermopylae or the difference between Athens and Sparta. Um, I might ask about like what how, what is similar between the Enuma Elish and, um, the, and Hesiod's Theogony. Um, these are, again, I'm only looking for one to two sentence answers. I'm not looking for like your thesis on Jason and the Argonauts. I'm instead just making sure that you know what you're talking about with these big ideas. Um, you know, things that are important enough that we've talked about them multiple times or they will come up in multiple classes or they frame the myths that we're reading in class. Um, then that's, that's it for the objective portion. Like I usually devote about an hour and 15 minutes for it. You will have an hour and 15 minutes online to take the test. Um, I trust you to be able to handle that and without any major difficulties. Um, the second part, however, is completely different from the first. 
Um, if that's the objective portion, testing breadth instead of depth, the essay is meant to test depth. Um, I'm looking for your ability to take a specific subject apart. Um, so you will find all of the questions online uh, on the Canvas page, like right next to the review sheet, you will see um, all of the questions for the essay section of the midterm. Um, so the idea here is that you will read them and you will prepare beforehand. Um, this is where you will reread old myths, look for new details, find themes and take apart um, analyze the stuff that we've read and discussed in class show me that you know this stuff more than just in terms of like you know this person did this thing show me more than just summary um, so the five questions we're dealing with here are one contrast the creation story presented in Hesiod's Theogony with two of the other creation myths um, this is an opportunity to just talk about all those different creation myths to do some comparative mythology. Um, so go ahead and say, you know, Theogony is the same as Enuma Elish in some ways, different from Phylon or Phylon's history in other ways, um, that sort of thing. So like look for those similarities, look for those differences and talk about what the differences in the cultures are. Um, so like if you are saying, you know, Hesiod's Theogony is very similar to the Enuma Elish, tell me why. Tell me what that means for the cultures. Say that it's similar, but also here are these key differences and this is what, change, what changes their outlooks. Um, like what does it mean that Gaia is a mother and the earth in Greece, but Tiamat is the mother but is ultimately killed and destroyed in the Enuma Elish. What does that mean for the Babylonians as opposed to the Greeks? Um, the second question then is compare and contrast the account of Pandora um, and the rise and fall of human beings in Hesiod with the account of the fall in Genesis 2 to 3. So here we have like a very specific thing where the creation myth stories give you some flexibility, like what myths do you want to talk about? What myths do you want to avoid? Here I'm just giving you a straight up question. What is how does Pandora relate to Adam and Eve? Um, talk about their similarities, talk about their differences, talk about their cultural importances. Um, then third is very general. What is the role of women in ancient Greek culture? Um, use details from our myths to support your thesis. Um, and please do not just give me like a binary, they like women or they don't like women. Like, yes, show me the details, show me the nuance, show me what specifically the myths are telling us, what characterizes women for the Greeks, um, and pick some myths to back that up. And there are tons that you can use for that purpose. Um, then the fourth one is a little esoteric. It's probably the most challenging of the bunch and people avoid it like the plague. I'll be very impressed if you take a, take a stab at it and maybe even be more generous as a result. Um, how do Plato's myths, i.e. the creation story in the Timaeus and the empowerment of humans in the Protagoras, contrast with the corresponding accounts in Hesiod's Theogony and Works and Days? Um, as we talked about early on in the class, Plato has a bone to pick with Hesiod and the myth tellers of his day. Um, he is very suspicious of them. He doesn't like their morality. So how does he correct that? Um, how does he tell myths to impose his own moral attitude, his own philosophical perspective? I think it's a fascinating question, um, which is why I keep including it on the midterm, despite the fact that my students dislike it. Um, so kudos to you if you want to take a stab at it. It's a, it's a worthy subject to talk about. 
And then the last question is, consider two of the identity myths we've studied about various ancient cities or civilizations. So Livy's discussion of the founding of Rome, um, the Exodus story from the Israelites, um, Theseus in the protection and founding of Athens. Um, talk about how these cultures identify themselves according to these myths. What does Livy say about who Rome is? What does Moses and his story tell us about um, the Israelite identity and culture? Um, what does the Trojan War narrative tell us about Greece as a whole? Um, that sort of thing. So, like, again, we talked about this at length a couple of weeks ago, um, and I'm looking in all of these cases for details. Like, give me specific examples, give me specific details, pull open your books and cite the chapter and verse of what it is we're talking about. Um, like, tell me Hesiod gives me this detail about Pandora or this detail about um, the creation of the universe. And what does that mean? How, do, how should we interpret that? How do the Greeks interpret that? Um, so again, that's what we're dealing with with the midterm. Um, if you have any questions, again, we'll probably be talking about it extensively during the Q&A session next Tuesday. Um, so feel free to raise your concerns and questions there. Um, I'd be happy to talk it over with you. If you have other questions, feel free to email me, feel free to message me. Like, I definitely want you to be as prepared for this midterm as possible, um, especially given the rather dramatic and uncomfortable change of venue at the same time. Um, like, I realize this is all coming at you fast. That's why I'm taking the time to talk it over with you. Um, that's why I'm spending as much time as I am lecturing about it. Um, so, you know, make sure that you feel comfortable about it or in lieu of absolutely comfortable, like as prepared as you possibly can be. Um, I realize that it sucks that it comes at right after spring break. And I hope that even now you are keeping this in mind and not just ignoring the class responsibilities as you're hanging out. Um, whatever you're doing, just make sure that you're ready for the midterm when in fact it's due next Thursday. Um, so again like thursday the 20 what is that 26th make sure or thursday the 26th or friday the 27th depending on your class um make sure that you're ready to take that midterm all right so all that aside um like again if you have any questions bring them up to me go ahead and email me i would rather be inundated with emails than hear dead silence from my students over the coming weeks um, by all means, keep that stuff coming. But I do, in fact, want to talk at least a little bit about Ovid um, while we are doing today's lecture. Um, so a couple of things first. Um, Ovid is one of our Roman writers, so his take on the material is rather different, as I hope you noticed. Um, he is writing right in that golden age Roman period when the when Augustus has just come to power and Rome is really at its peak during the Pax Romanum. Um, they've taken over the Greeks, so they have very much assimilated Greek culture at this point. They have their own take on the myths at this point. Um, but they're also kind of spinning it in that very particular Roman way. Um, and one of the things I definitely want to stress about our reading from Ovid, because I realize, again, it's just like out of nowhere and I'm taking this random chapter from right in the middle of the text. Um, one of the things that I do definitely want to stress is that Ovid is writing this very differently 
um, than most of the writers we've encountered in this class so far. Like we've read Hesiod, we started with Hesiod, and it's obvious that Hesiod is creating a myth in the capital M sense. Like he is writing a story about the foundation of the universe, about the major gods and goddesses with a very clear polemic agenda. He wants us to respect Zeus. He emphasizes over and over and over again that like you cannot evade Zeus's judgment. You cannot escape Zeus's rulings. You cannot overturn Zeus's will for your life. Um, and by contrast, when we read Apollodorus or some of our other writers like Livy, they're just tabulating myths. Like they are trying to do what Grimm is doing in the 19th century. Just sort of like keep track of all of these stories, try and like forge a coherent narrative about them, but also recognize and respect differing attitudes and different versions of the story. So like that's why Apollodorus, when he tells the story of Heracles, will absolutely emphasize, you know, like some people tell it this way some people tell it a different way some people say that he cleaned out the Aegean stables and as and since he used a river it didn't count other people say it's because he like tried to you know get paid for it beforehand um all those different versions of Jason and the Argonauts like Apollodorus Livy these guys are trying to just tell the stories keep track of them um, respect them in the way that a scholar respects them, respect the history of these traditions, respect the, the various different accounts that are given. Um, Ovid is doing neither of these things. Um, Ovid is doing art. Um, he is writing these myths, old stories, in a new format, in a new telling. Um, like, as we... As we are shifting gears in this class, as we move on to the second half of the semester, we're going to spend more time dealing with these sustained narratives, um, mythic traditions that are not just like the raw material of storytelling, but rather that are fully realized works of art in their own right. Um, obviously, we're going to be spending most of the semester with, hot, with Homer. Um, the Iliad, the Odyssey, these are like the greatest mythic tellings in all of history and all of Western culture. Um, but Ovid is doing something very much between what Homer is doing with his single sustained narrative and with what like Apollodorus is doing with his various different traditions all sort of like coming together and being tabulated. Ovid is giving us a poem in this sort of quasi-epic tradition but he is telling a whole bunch of different myths as though it is one sustained story. He is imposing his own artistic interpretation on it and trying to make beauty and one thematic coherence of all of these various different stories. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, Hesiod is just out to like tell us what gods do, why they do them, and why this is important to us. Apollodorus is trying to just keep them all together and say like this is what the Greeks believe at any one given point. Ovid is actually, like I said, doing art. He is trying to give us something to learn. He is teaching us. He is weaving this together and what is and the stories themselves are almost downplayed by comparison to the art with which he is uniting them. He is creating something here, um, rather than just, like, retelling old stories. Um, so, 
if we look at his poem at the Metamorphoses, um, like again, we're only getting a little snapshot here. We did read Ovid a little bit earlier, um, back in the creation myth section, like the last reading I gave you was just a chunk of the very beginning of Ovid's Metamorphoses where he's telling the creation of the world. Um, but one of the things that will define Ovid's Metamorphoses is again, this focus on theme. He's going to be constantly grouping and organizing his myths and telling them with an eye towards communicating these central themes, primarily of change. Like that's what the book's title is, Ovid's Metamorphoses, Metamorphoses, The Changes. Um, so one of the things that you'll see throughout the myths that he tells here, like going from Orpheus forward, um, is he will frequently stress the changes that occur, the transformations, the ways that you know, fate or the gods or whoever changes a person into something else, something that's not a person, or changes something that's not a person into a person. Um, overwhelmingly, these myths will feature these moments of transformation. There are exceptions, like Ganymede, for example, but overwhelmingly, he will keep coming back to those changes, how humanity and mortality is malleable. Um, but I also want to sort of just focus on like the way that he tells these myths as well. Um, so I'm using a slightly different translation than the one that we're using in class, uh, Rolf Humphreys. But I do want to focus as well on the way that he like constructs his language as well, because it's really quite gorgeous. Um, but take, for example, our very familiar story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, like the reason why I picked this section is because I did want to sort of concentrate on Orpheus and his telling of Orpheus and sort of at the same time as I'm giving you this glimpse of what Ovid is doing like as a project with the Metamorphoses. Um, but notice what he focuses on with Orpheus and Eurydice. Notice the choices that he makes here. Um, so like the last time we heard about Orpheus and Eurydice was probably all the way back at the beginning of class when Lewis told us his little version of the story. So Orpheus, you know, is in love with this girl, decides to get married to her on their wedding day. She dies. He gets so upset that he goes all the way down into the underworld, pleads with Hades and Persephone for her. And they tell him, okay, you can have her back, but... If you want her, you have to go all the way out without looking back to see that we like gave her to you. And Orpheus walks all the way up, but then at the last minute he turns around to see if, if Eurydice is there. She is, but she vanishes and she's lost to him forever. Um, but again, Ovid is keeping these key details, but he also is actually being really ambitious with his execution here. So take this opening, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice at the beginning of book 10. Um, he's concluding the story that he tells before. That's one of the things that Ovid is doing is he's weaving all of these stories together. It's very similar to the, to the Arabian Nights or to other sort of like stories within story structures uh, kind of common at this time. Um, so he says, so Hymen left there, clad in saffron robe, through the great reach of air, and took his way to the Circonian country, where the voice of Orpheus called him, all in vain. He came there, true, but brought with him no auspicious words, no joyful faces, lucky omens. The torch sputtered and filled the eyes with smoke, when swung, it would not blaze. Bad as the omens were, the end was worse. For as the bride went walking across the lawn, attended by her naiads, a serpent bit her ankle, and she was gone. 
Orpheus mourned her to the upper world, and then, lest he should leave the shades untried, dared to descend to Styx, passing the portal men called Tenarian. Through the phantom dwellers, the buried ghosts he passed, came to the king of that sad realm, and to Persephone his consort, and he swept the strings and chanted. So again, we have a very clear emphasis on the detail here. The poetry is very much front and center. We have this sort of one story bleeding into another story as Hyman is moving from one location to another and then sees Orpheus. But we also have that foreshadowing as Hyman approaches. There are no good omens while this wedding is taking place. There's this suspicion that things are going to go badly, which of course everyone knows they're going to. This is the myth of Orpheus. It's famously tragic. But also notice how we proceed from here. Like after this introduction, which he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on, we actually get Orpheus's song. So he says, Through the phantom dwellers, the buried ghosts he passed, came to the king of that sad realm, and to Persephone his consort, and he swept the strings and chanted, colon, quote, Gods of the world below the world, to whom all of us mortals come, if I may speak without deceit, the simple truth is this. I came here not to see dark Tartarus, not, nor yet to bind the triple-throated monster, Medusa's offering, rough, offspring rough with snakes. I came for my wife's sake, whose growing years were taken by a snake's venom. I wanted to be able to bear this. I have tried to. Love has conquered. This god is famous in the world above, but here I do not know. I think he may be, or is it all a lie, that ancient story of an old ravishment and how he brought the two of you together. By these places all full of fear, by this immense confusion, by this vast kingdom silences, I beg you, weave over Eurydice's life, run through too soon. To you we all, people and things, belong, sooner or later, to this single dwelling all of us come, to our last home. You hold longest dominion over humankind. She will come back again to be your subject after the ripeness of her ears. I am asking a loan and not a gift. If fate denies us this privilege for my wife, one thing is certain. I do not want to go back either. Triumph in the death of two. So first off, this is a direct quote. Like this is the song, according to Ovid, that Orpheus sang to persuade the Lord of the Dead Hades himself, the emotionless, absolutely just ruler of the underworld, to let Eurydice go, to give her a pass. Which is itself insane. Like, this is profound hubris on the part of Ovid, that he can claim to reproduce, or rather recreate, the words of the famously greatest poet who ever lived. He is basically going so far as to say that, like, I am a better poet than Orpheus was. I can move the Lord of the Dead as well as Orpheus did. Um, and in the later sections, as we see Orpheus like calling trees to him, Ovid is basically saying, I can write that song, which is crazy. Like very few of the Greeks are going to ever claim such impressiveness. This is like saying I am as strong as Achilles. Like as much as Homer is a great poet, there is no point in time where he will ever claim to be the greatest poet who ever lived, claim to be able to create his words. Um, so, again, that that's probably a little bit of that Roman hubris swinging in here. Like, Ovid feels bold enough to be able to say that, like, this old Greek tradition is something that he can make himself. But also notice the details in the song here, like what Orpheus actually says. Um, he's not here to visit the underworld. He is here to get his wife back. 
but notice his stress on the or his emphasis on the subject of love love has conquered he says i wanted to be able to bear this i have tried to love has conquered um orpheus like any normal human being has to deal with death it's a thing we all have people we love who die um and orpheus tried to bear this with a normal manly stoicism typical of the time like he suffered for eurydice he knew that sometimes life is just freaking unfair sometimes the wife that you were planning to marry dies on your wedding day that was his lot he tried to bear it he couldn't love conquered him but importantly he says this isn't unusual this god is famous in the world above but here i do not know this is the underworld does love still rule here can shades fall in love and yet he says i think he may be or is it all a lie that ancient story of an old ravishment and how he brought the two of you together he's saying love has to be here like sure we all talk about love on the overworld and you assume that like shades do not have love that they are just empty in some way but at the same time he's saying hades you once fell in love remember or is that story untrue if you swept Persephone, kidnapped her, created this huge stir among the gods, well, then wasn't that motivated by love? How can you fault me, Orpheus, for following my love all the way here, for dying to be with her, quite literally in this case, or something very close to it, if you yourself were carried away by love the same way once upon a time? I feel the same way as you do. You feel the same way as I do. You know how I feel, so you had to give her back to me. And notice, too, the way that he sort of emphasizes that this isn't that big a deal. It's a loan, not a gift. We're coming back, he stresses. Um, I'm just asking you to wait. Claim Eurydice only after she has lived her due life, after she has, you know been a person for as long as she should be um we're coming back to you he stresses this is just a loan not a gift but importantly he ends this by saying and if you're not willing to do this if you're not willing to release her then take me too i'm not going to live without her so i might as well be dead um and notice too like even ovid is aware of how important this song is like, as much as I emphasize that, like, this is the greatest poet who ever lived and so on, you could definitely poo-poo it as being, oh, well, Ovid's just doing a story thing. But notice that Ovid himself has the entirety of the underworld stop in its tracks when Orpheus sings this song. With his words, the music made the pale phantoms weep. Ixion's wheel was still. Titius's vultures left the liver. Tantalus tried no more to reach for the water. And Belus's daughters rested from their urns. And Sisyphus climbed on his rock to listen. That was the first time ever in all the world the Furies wept. These are a catalog of the normal things that you're going to run into if you ever visit the underworld. And at this point, we've seen Heracles visit the underworld. We've had Theseus wander into the underworld. We are going to see more characters wander into the underworld before our class is out. Um, but this is pretty characteristic of what you're going to see when you get there. Um, all of these figures are famous underworld-like celebrities. 
Uh, so notice each one in turn. We have Ixion. Ixion was famously punished by being put on a wheel, and the wheel is constantly turning. Um, so Ixion is, like, spinning all of the time. I believe his original crime was that he wanted to, like, sleep with one of the Olympian gods and, like, tried to seduce or ravish Hera or something, and this is how you get crazy punishments in the underworld. Um, but Ixion's wheel is still when Orpheus sings. Titios has a similar punishment to Prometheus. Um, he also is guilty of a super duper crime. And as a result, he's like chained to a rock and a vulture tears out his liver every day. Um, but notice here, the vultures leave the liver. They are calmed by Orpheus's song as well. Um, Tantalus is the one who is famously tantalized. Um, he is the one who stands in the water and every time that he he's like constantly hungry and thirsty and there are grapes above him and there's water below him but every time he reaches up to grab the grapes they retract they like pull away and he can't reach them and every time he bends down to drink from the water he's standing in the water recedes and he can't drink it so he's constantly just tor tormented by this hunger and thirst um but here he's also calmed orpheus calms him he no tries no more to reach for the water. Um, Belus's daughters, these are frequently known as the Danaids. Um, like, they were punished for murdering their husbands, um, with one exception, as always seems to be the case. And as a result, they're always messing with these pots all the time. But here they stop. And then Sisyphus is probably the most famous of them all. He's the one that Camus really liked, who uh, Sisyphus has to push his boulder up a mountain and then he'll get it to the very top, and then the boulder will roll all the way back down, and then he has to go back and get the boulder and push it all the way again. Um, Sisyphus is also, if I'm not mistaken, the one who tried to cheat death. Um, he's the one who, when he died, he told his wife not to put coins over his eyes so the ferryman wouldn't take him across the river Styx. So he gets to the underworld, and Charon is like, where's your, where's your fare? And he's like, ah, oh, dang! My wife, darn her, she must have left it behind. So Sisyphus gets, like, chucked back up to the living world, and he just lives for another couple of years, except the gods find out about this, and they're ticked. So they punish him to push the rock up and down the mountain all the time. Um, but notice here, he is still. His punishment is stopped. He climbs on the rock to listen. Um, all of these torments cease momentarily while they listen to Orpheus. So again, Ovid is stressing his own value as a poet here he's saying like look i am telling this story that is so great this poem so beautiful that the punishments of the underworld stop while it is being sung and notice to that last one this is the first time in all the world that the furies weep the furies are famously heartless they punish anyone who violates the laws of the gods they will hunt down and kill chase interminably viciously torment and tear apart anyone who violates these laws we'll see them again later in the poem when we're invoke we're talking about incest um and yet they weep like these are basically inhuman monsters and they weep to hear orpheus's song to hear Ovid's song. Um, but notice, like, this version of the story, this is, you know, a good chunk of the Orpheus myth, and yet Ovid doesn't stop where we would normally stop. Um, they do, in fact, climb up 
the, like the the whole thing the whole bargain is announced Hades says okay so you have to you know go all the way back up to the overworld without looking back to see that Eurydice is there and again Orpheus goes all the way up but right at the last minute he looks behind him and she's gone and that's the end of their relationship but notice that Ovid keeps going if anything Ovid's emphasis is on Orpheus's song after the fact um, after this horrible, tragic thing has happened, he spends whole chunks of his poem talking about him singing a after Eurydice has been taken away. Um, so he says, The double death stunned Orpheus, like the man who turned to stone at sight of Cerberus, or the couple of rock, Alenos and Lethea, hearts so joined one shared the other's guilt, and Ida's mountain, where rivers run, still holds them both together. Orpheus is stunned he is transformed in this moment he becomes a different person and the comparison is to the people who turn to stone the people who have been transformed have been changed in vain the prayers of orpheus and his longing to cross the river once more the boatman charon drove him away for seven days he sat there beside the bank in filthy garments and tasting no food whatever trouble grief and tears were all his sustenance at last, complaining the gods of hell were cruel, he wandered on to Rhodope and Hamas, swept by the north winds, where for three years he lived without a woman, either because marriage had meant misfortune or he had made a promise. But many women wanted this poet for their own, and many grieved over their rejection. His love was given to young boys only, and he told the Thracians that was the better way. Enjoy that springtime, take those first flowers. There was a hill and on it a wide extending plain, all green, but lacking the darker shade, green of shade. And when the singer came there and ran his fingers over the strings, the shade came there to listen. The oak tree came, and many poplars, and the gentle lindens, the beech, the virgin laurel, and the hazel easily broken, the ash men use for spears, the shining silver fir, the ilex bending under its acorns, the friendly sycamore, the changing colored maple, and the willows that love the river waters, and the lotus favoring pores, and the green pools, and the green boxwood came, slim tamarisks, and myrtle, and viburnum with dark blue berries, and the pliant ivy, the tendrils grape, the elms, all dressed with vines, the rowan trees, the pitch pines, and the arboot with the red fruit, the palm, the victor's triumph, the bare-trunked pine with spreading leafy crest, dear to the mother of the gods since Attis put off his human form, took on that likeness, and the cone-shaped cypress joined them, now a tree but once a boy. And we are trans already moving into the next myth. But notice that even the trees come to listen to Orpheus. Once again, Ovid is emphasizing his greatness as a poet. And even if we skip forward to book 11 when Orpheus's death is recounted it starts at the same point with his singing Orpheus drew the trees the beasts the stones to follow and then he's interrupted by the maenads the bacchae the circonian women um but notice that like Ovid is stressing how Orpheus is transforming these things out of their normal behavior. His song is so beautiful, it stops the underworld and it brings even trees and rocks to listen to him. Um, when the Circonian women try to kill Orpheus because they're offended that he won't sleep with them, they start throwing things and the things themselves won't hit him. So we get 
Look there, there is our despiser, and she flung a spear straight at the singing mouth, but the leafy wand made only a mark and did no harm. Another let fly a stone, which, even as it flew, was conquered by the sweet harmonious music, fell at his feet as if to ask for pardon, but still the warfare raged, there was no limit. They're trying to kill him, and the objects they use are listening to the music and falling to his wiles. He is persuading them out of their normal behavior. Um... This is one of the things that Ovid is sort of emphasizing here, that the beauty of a song can do these profound changes to nature and the world around him. Um, and if anything, he, by sort of giving Orpheus his words when he sings to Hades, Ovid is sort of concluding that he, is, he can or is doing the same. He, too, is changing the natural world, transforming everything around him. He is bringing peace to those who lack it. Um, this is one of the ways that Ovid sees the work of myth, the work of art, um, which is very much becoming sort of its own thing at this point in time. Like, we haven't talked about this at great length in our class so far, um, but there is this sort of move that's been taking place over the last thousand years. Um, like, I realize that when we sit in class, we're looking at books, just old books all the time. Um, but, you know, with Homer, with Hesiod, with even Plato in many respects, um, what they're doing isn't art the way that, like, people who make movies or write books now are doing art. They're not participating in this essentially frivolous enterprise um they're doing religion in the ancient greek traditions like hesiod is structuring their faith he is giving them a text that will then reign as scripture for all intents and purposes when you recite homer's iliad or odyssey you were doing something that is worship to the gods even the tragedies and the comedies of the early classical period are usually devoted to Dionysus. This is a way of worshiping. Um, but here, while Ovid is respecting the gods in his own way, he's also performing art for its own sake in some sense. He recognizes that doing beauty, the actual business of singing, is itself something worthwhile, um, no matter what it is you're singing about. Orpheus changes the world around him, in a, for the better in most cases. Um, even if people are mad at him, even if he makes people sad, he is doing something good, something good in and of itself. He's not making the gods better respected, even though Bacchus does protect him. Um, he's creating something beautiful, which is itself making the world a better place. Um, and this is, this distance, the fact that Ovid is doing what is essentially quasi-religious but also beautiful and worthwhile in and of itself this is a secularization that is becoming more and more common in the roman empire something that really didn't occur very often in the ancient greeks until the late classical period guys like plato and aristotle and some of the later comic and tragic uh writers poets the people who wrote tragedies and comedies um they see themselves as doing something doing a service in its own right, creating art that can exist outside of the religious tradition. Um, which, you know, 
again, because we take it for granted that art and religion are something separate in our day and age, it's important to remember that that wasn't always the case. The difference between a poet and a priest is very small um, in our ancient cultures. They don't see much difference, um, and especially not in the very ancient ones, like, again, Homer or the Enuma Elish or the ancient uh, Egyptian texts that we read. They all have sacred purposes. They're not just like pithy sayings you put on a tombstone because or whoever it was liked that poem. Um, they have real religious significance. Um, this is starting to ride that line. Um, and you can tell because a lot of the things that Ovid chooses to write about are themselves kind of profane. Um, so you'll notice like the longest section in this book is, or in this reading is the story of Cinyras and Mira, which is essentially an incestuous relationship in which a daughter falls in love with her father and like sleeps with him by night so he won't recognize her, even though everyone knows that this is offensive to the gods and like the Furies are mad at them and everyone is going to die horribly in this situation. Um, like the best thing that happens to Mira is she turns into a tree, the myrrh tree. Um, she is transformed, so she does not have to suffer. She willingly asks to be suspended between death and life, so she doesn't have to, to infect either the living world or the dead one with her sin. Um, and this is celebrated. Like, Ovid is not emphasizing the evil. He does stress it, but he makes it out to be more forceful than that. Her love for for her father is is even questioned here um she even at one point says uh that how could this feeling how could this love be a crime she says uh mira herself knew her own wickedness and fought against it what kind of thing is this that i am planning oh gods i pray you keep me decent keep me devoted as i should be to my parents respectful of their rights keep off this sin this crime or is it a crime Devotion cannot condemn such love as crime. The beasts, I notice, made as they will, and no one calls a heifer disgrace to have her father on her back. And no one thinks a filly should not welcome her sire as stallion. The ram goes into ewes he has begotten, and the birds are treaded by cocks whose treading gave them life. How happy they are to be so free. But human culture has made malignant laws, laws against nature, envious, jealous laws. If anything, Ovid is criticizing the laws against incest here. Um or at least giving Mira's voice such potency that she can criticize them, which is kind of a dubious difference, all things considered. But he's basically considering blasphemy here. He is questioning the laws of the gods, and some of the most sacred ones at that. Like, again, the Furies kill you if you do incest, so don't do incest. And yet here we have Mira being extremely sympathetic, um, being in love and asking, why is this forbidden? Why is this feeling forbidden? Um, now, a lot of what Ovid is doing, like, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that Ovid is, like, legitimately questioning is he is himself blaspheming or, like, trying to change Roman law. It's, it's hard to say. Um, it, it does seem more sympathetic to incest than you would expect. But at the very least, he is sort of, he's emphasizing the human experience as being itself worthy of respect and admiration, even when it does things that we would normally forbid or reject. Um, Mira is sympathetic, even if she is doing something wrong. 
think of Euripides too, as we talked about with Medea. Um, Medea is a monster. She kills her own children. She murders her brother and chops him into little pieces. That's bad. But Euripides takes the time to understand why she does these things. And his chorus is sympathetic to her. They turn away. They do not judge. Neither does Ovid. Um, they don't feel that same religious imperative, that effort towards judgment to enforcing the laws of the gods. They're willing to entertain the humanity outside of their responsibilities to be pious or to be godly. Um, now, we're already coming up on the hour and 15 minute mark here, so I don't want to go too much further because, you know, the last thing I want to do is talk your ear off for two hours. Um, but I do want to stress that Ovid is repeatedly interested in these transformations. He is interested in what makes people do things that are otherwise forbidden or wrong. Um, transformation in the physical sense, like Mira transforming into a tree, or like um, like the other, or like Atalanta turning into a lion. These are all transformations in the physical sense, but also the transformations that overcome these people. Mira's gradual acceptance of her sin, um, Orpheus changing from a man in love with his wife to a totally broken, sad and compelling singer. Um, Hyacinthus and his transformation into flowers is also moved by Apollo's transformation. He's, Apollo is always the guy who is like on top of things. He never makes a mistake and yet he kills his best friend. Um, this is what Ovid is interested in more than anything else. He is interested in these profoundly human moments of loss or tragedy or suffering, the times when we change our behavior. Um, so, again, we're not going to come back to Ovid, unfortunately, because, again, it is gorgeous poetry, as well as just being this fascinating study in how myths are used at this moment. Um, but I do want you to think about this going forward, because um, we're going to do a lot more of these deep dives as we get into Homer. Um, I want you to think not just in terms of what is the myth telling us, what is the content, what is the details, the interactions, but also what it means. Try and identify with these characters, because you can in many cases. You can identify with Orpheus's loss, or with Achilles's anger, or with Odysseus's sense of hopelessness. Um, as we're reading the Homeric epics, Think in term, think of these in terms of literature as well as thinking of them in terms of like religious instruction manuals. Um, we're gonna have to do both because they're serving as both in these cases. Um, so anyway, that's just again a little bit of what we're dealing with in Ovid. Um, I hope you give it a deeper read than I've been able to give it a deep treatment. Um, but again, going forward, remember everything that I said about the class going forward. Remember, especially if you do have any questions, if you are confused about anything, do not hesitate to email me or message me, get in touch with me in some way. Um, I definitely would rather get inundated with messages than have you guys stranded wishing you knew what was going on. Um, in the meantime, be sure to get me your discord handles if you want to be in the chat on Tuesday. Um, and do not, do not miss the midterm on Thursday, um, because that's a major, major grade, and I really do not want to have to be chasing down people because they missed it. Um, like, this, it's a hard deadline there, uh, so, like, I can't, I can't futz that one. 
Um, I, I tend to accept most assignments late, but the midterm is going to be an exception. Um, get it to me by Thursday. Get me the essay by Thursday, by Thursday or Friday, as the case may be. Um, and, you know, we'll go from there. Uh, like I said, I hope you're having a pretty good time hanging out at home. I hope that spring break has been relatively good despite the crisis. Um, I hope that you are safe and healthy um, and that you're not suffering too much under our newly weird circumstances. Um, I'll talk to you again for next week. We will start in on the Iliad um, and I'll talk to you when we do the Q&A so we can go over the midterm and everything else that's going on. So until then, good luck, stay safe, and I'll talk to you then.